Church, this morning we've got something very exciting, and we're going to start it by watching a video. Check it out. In 2015, we really felt like God might be calling us to plant a church. We were on staff here at Woods Edge as the worship pastors, but the timing didn't seem right. And so I resigned and decided to go into business. And I remember sitting and talking with Jeff and basically resigning. And he smiled and said, Ben, this makes total sense. He's going to prepare you during your time in business to plant a church. I remember thinking, I don't know about that, Jeff, but it became evident over the three years that I was in business that that's exactly what God was doing. Ashley and I were on a trip sometime in 2017 and I remember praying and the Holy Spirit impressed on me, hey Ben, I think you're on a different path than I have intended and planned for you. I remember Ashley coming outside and I shared that with her and she said, yeah, I've felt this way for a while. I've been praying that God would show you this. And so that began the process of us surrendering uh, selling things that we had, selling a house, and really just jumping in and saying, God, wherever you want us to go, we'll go. And we decided that that was church planting. College Station wasn't on our minds at all when we decided to plant a church. In fact, we thought we would be in the Houston area. We have friends and family here, and so it was logical to stay in town. But as we started to ask people to pray about this with us, we started to see some consistency. Many people started to say, have you prayed about Bryan College Station? Hey, I think you guys should consider Bryan College Station. And before too long, we realized we have like a church ready to start with us. And so we started to gather those with those people. We moved to town. And uh, over the last several weeks, we've seen people come together to say, we want to reach people who are far from Christ, people who don't know Jesus, people who have never stepped in a church. We're all of the same mind and we all have the same passion and direction and that is to reach people that don't know Jesus. Bryan College Station is a really unique place and I'm excited for the emphasis that Citizens Church is gonna put on building small communities within the city. I really believe that that is the most effective way that we're able to share the gospel with people is just in one-on-one -on -one interactions. And so I love that Citizens Church is gonna focus on building those small communities just as much as they're gonna focus on a Sunday service. I see restoring value to the individuals as one of the biggest needs in the Bryan College Station area. I grew up here and so I see, I've grown up seeing the stark difference between Bryan and College Station identities and I think it would just be so cool to unite them and people be focused. We have the unique opportunity of working in the district and so uh, it excited me when, when the Lord gave Ben a vision and Ashley a vision for them to be able to come because it was, I, I saw this opportunity for uh, in the spirit that he was given to just bring people together mm -hmm. and to not only um, bring them from different faiths and mm -hmm. traditions, but just different socioeconomic yeah. statuses yeah. and even racially to be yeah. able to bring people together. And they just have a spirit that is um, infectious mm -hmm. and one that is like embodies, uh, when I think of Barnabas, I'd love to have met him, but when I think of them, that's that's what I think mm -hmm. about and their ability just to do that and to represent and to go into places and feel comfortable mm -hmm. and to vouch for people in, in very profound ways. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that really very early on. We've been so spurred on. We, we leave and get in the car and talk about, I, I actually feel challenged. I'm thinking throughout the week about the up close and personal conversations that we'll have the following week that I'm challenged to step out and be the church in our city um, in a really fresh way. So we're excited about that. It is evident to us that God has gone 
before us. He has put together a group of people to be a part of this church that share the same heart and mind and passions that we do. So we wanna thank you today, Woods Edge, for your support. We wanna thank you for being a church that cares about planting churches. We wanna thank you for your prayers and for your hearts. We love you. All righty, church, this is Ben and Ashley Rush. Many of you know them. This is John Heritage, our director of church planning, Charlie Howell, our lead elder, and I think some other elders and their wives are going to also be joining us up here. Okay, this is Ben and Ashley Rush. Many, uh, got to get the shoulder here, not the head. Uh, Ashley and Ben were part of the church family here for five years. Ben was our lead worship pastor. Ashley was up here every Sunday, so many of you, uh, know them real well, love them. Others of you are newer. I want you to know them because we together as a church, we are planting them in Bryan College Station. We're sending them out uh, from Woods Edge Church Plant. So, so we're in this together. They're not in there this alone. We're, we're in this together, which means they need our prayers because uh, it's a big challenge to start church, but yet this is God's way of expanding the kingdom around the planet. It always has been to plant churches, right from the book of Acts right down to today. And I'm personally just very excited. I love this couple. We love them. They're three kids. And this is somewhat emotional for me. And I know that I'm a little bit emotionally challenged. But to have Ben and Ashley, um, part of our church family, and uh, for, for them to make the sacrifices they're making, they've downsized their house, they've downsized their cars, they've way downsized their salaries, and uh, to plan a church because this is God's call. And so we're going to together commission them. John Harrington is our pastor of church planning. Uh, John has perhaps overseen more church plants in Texas than any other person. And he says, Ben has been doing a wonderful job leading this effort. So... Uh, we're going to, uh, would you stand and lift your hand towards them so they'll know that you're for them and that you're, you're partnering with them. Uh, we as elders and spouses are going to lay hands on them. John will lead us as we pray. Lord, we're just so amazed that when a baby's born and it's this new life, there's a miracle that has happens every time a new life occurs and so Lord these people are already in the labor pains of giving birth to a new expression of your love and grace and the gospel and I'm reminded of Isaiah 49 that you spoke so long ago it's too small a thing huh. that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the holy ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations that my salvation may go to the ends of the earth. I can't think of a more strategic place, Lord, that you would place somebody because you place us each exactly in a geography for a reason. And so in this place that has such a massive sending force to the nations in College Station and Brian, we pray that this church would be an extraordinary expression yes. of your yes. sending power. Lord, I pray that they're, they're named well, that they are citizens, that there are people who are just lost, they're immigrants, they're trying to find their way 
They're looking for a better life. And now they're invited to be citizens of heaven. To that end, Lord, we just lift them up and ask for your great blessing on them. In your name, amen. 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 Give them a big hand if you would. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. So at the end of the service, I'm going to ask Ben and Ashley and their three kids to stand right down front. Uh, go ahead and have a seat. Some of you will get a chance to uh, meet them. Some of you will get a chance to say hello to them again. But we'll get to uh, greet them before they leave. All right, guys. Um, 40 days almost up. This is day 36 out of 40. So this Thursday, uh, I assume that I'm not the only one who's ready to end my 40 days of fasting. Uh, I assume that's part of y'all too. But we are certainly not ending our praying. We're going to, this is kind of the new normal to press into God in prayer. Uh, so many of you have really been uh, raising the bar in your prayer, uh, reading the Batterson book, reading the Symbol of Book, coming to the Wednesday nights. And it's, uh, we've just seen a lot of answers to prayer, a lot of breakthroughs, but we want to see more. So we're going to go finish hard the next four or five days. Uh, let me just say as your pastor, thank you for the way y'all have entered in. God uses people who pray God uses churches that pray, so way to go, church. Okay, we're in Acts 2, one of the milestone passages in the Bible, because God in Acts 2 begins a new era, a new epoch. He pours out His Holy Spirit, and the last epoch that had lasted all the way since Genesis 12 was the focus on one nation, Israel. That's the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, all through the Old Testament, all through the Gospels, through Acts 1. But now in Acts 2, God pours out His Holy Spirit and launches a new age, dealing not with one nation, but all the nations, you know, people like us, and uh, the church, the worldwide church, gathering from both Jews and Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. So Acts 2, a milestone passage. If you were here last week, I said to you that this uh, huge section of the Bible on Israel has bookends. Genesis 11, right before the passage started in the call of Abraham, had the Tower of Babel, the judgment of God, the scattering of the people, the confusion of languages. And right after it, that section ends, now in Acts 2, we've got the reversal of Babel because God pours out not judgment but grace. There is not the uh, scattering but the gathering of believers. There's not the confusion of speech but the miraculous understanding of, of speech. It's the reversal of Babel, and God is announcing to not only the people then, but to all of us, it is a new day. It's a new day. And I am beginning the age of the church, the age of the Spirit, and the age of a worldwide harvest. That's why Ben and Ashley are planting in Bryan College Station. And that's why we plant all over the world. By the way, this church planting, some of you, God will call to plant a church. And we are looking forward to being a partner with you in that. Some of you, God will call. All righty. Last week we saw that God marked this day, the age of the Spirit, by three incredible things that um, uh, just got everybody's attention. One, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, wind a pointer to the Spirit. There were tongues of fire on people's heads, the believers' heads, fire assembling the Bible of of the presence of God, and then there were these foreign languages. They began speaking in the languages of all these Jewish people who had been visiting the city from all around the empire, languages they had not learned in the reversal of Babel. And then when all of this commotion happened, thousands kind of rushed towards the temple area. There were tons of people there anyway during a festival, 
but Peter is going to stand up and preach. And let me pick up the passage with that. If you'd stand with me, I'll read in Acts 2, beginning at verse 14, where we see this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, the signs on the earth beneath, below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Please be seated, church. This is God's holy word. So, church, there's going to be three movements in this passage. The part that I read, we're going to go on past the part that I read, but it's the coming of the Spirit. And then the next several verses, 24 through 32, we've got the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the final verse is the exaltation of Jesus with his ascension and seating at the right hand of God. So these three movements. It's going to begin with the coming of the Spirit for Paul, for Peter to explain that. And then he's going to rivet in and focus on Jesus, his death and resurrection and exaltation. But first... In verse 14, Peter gets up and immediately says, they're not drunk like many of you suppose because they had such unusual, abnormal behavior that in the nervousness of some of these Jewish people who are seeing what's going on, some of them say, well, I guess they're, they're drunk. Peter gets up and says, it's only the third hour of the day. That's 9 a.m. in Jewish reckoning. It's 9 a.m., guys. They're not drunk. But this is what Joel, the prophet, foretold 800 years earlier that one day I will pour out my spirit on all believers, on all my people. And Peter stands up and says, this is it. This is the long foretold promise of my spirit to be poured out. Now, the spirit, that's God, of course. That's God the spirit. He's always been here. He's God. And in the Old Testament, he would come upon certain people at certain times for special tasks. For example, maybe David had a certain special task. The Spirit would come upon him and strengthen him and guide him. We saw that through the Old Testament time to time. But always there was the promise, one day I will pour out my Spirit on all believers. And, and, and this happens in Acts 2. And it begins the church. It begins the age of the Spirit. And it begins this worldwide harvest, not focused on Jews anymore, but Jews and Gentiles. Now, the contrast between they're not drunk, the, the implicit uh, idea here is if you're drunk, you're under the influence of alcohol. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're under the influence of the Spirit. And that is God's plan for you and me. In fact, later in Ephesians 5.18 Perhaps the most famous verse of all on the Spirit in the New Testament, Paul makes the same uh, analogy when he says, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Spirit. 
So church, Woods Edge this morning, you and I live in the age of the Spirit. And that means we are to live in the power of the Spirit, led by the Spirit moment by moment. Lord God, I do not know what to do. Would you guide me by your Spirit? And we're surrendered to the control of the Spirit. Unfortunately, it seems to me that most Christians, the vast majority of Christians, ignore the Spirit and neglect the Spirit. It's almost like, you know, we're driving the car, we're in the driver's seat, and we sort of relegate the Spirit to the back seat at best, maybe the trunk. And rather, what we need to do is swap roles with the Spirit. We need to climb in the back seat, let the Spirit take control of our lives. That is, we don't, we don't need to, to think and figure out what to do and how to live and how to overcome sin, but rather we say, Lord, I need your Spirit to guide me, to empower me, to lead me, to teach me, uh, moment by moment, led by the Spirit. The, the terms in the Bible, be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, uh, be led by the Spirit, all of these Talk about the Spirit of God empowering us and leading us, being in control. As I have mentioned before, A.W. Tozer's remark was that in the modern church, the Holy Spirit is so neglected that if you took the Holy Spirit out of the church today, 95% of, of things would just keep on going as normal. But if you took the Holy Spirit out of the early church in the book of Acts, everything would change. Everything would be different. Church, we live in the power of the Spirit. That means a deep and profound surrender. Last week I mentioned a book by Steve Smith who was part of our church family, one of the leading missionary statesmen in the world, and he goes home last March to be with the Lord. Before he dies, and God uh, gives him this book, his wife Laura, who's still part of our church, said, I, I think this was, you know, what God had for Steve, a gift to the church. In this book, Spirit Walk, which our women are studying and their Bible studies Monday night, Thursday morning. Many of you have read it. Uh, he summarized, okay, how do you be filled with the Spirit? How do you be led by the Spirit? And he chooses four, uh, four words in an acronym, SWAP. SWAP, S-W-A-P, SWAP places with the Spirit. Let Him take control, not you. And the S stands for surrender to God. That's the term that I have used for some decades, that seems to me to be the best summary, the best English word to summarize how we're filled with the Spirit. We surrender. We get out of the way and let's surrender to the Spirit. We depend upon the Spirit. But he elaborates it in a very good way when he says, okay, the W is wait in prayer because if you're a praying person, that means you're dependent upon the Spirit. You're looking to the Spirit, not yourself, if you pray. They avoid sin because if you're living in sin, if you're living in open sin, God's not going to let you get close to Him. And, you know, He's a holy God. And so we need to get rid of sin. And right now, if you are living in some sin in your life, whether that involves money, sex, honesty, gossip, unforgiveness, in any area of your life, the, you're not filled with the Spirit. God's not going to, to, to get close to you and fill you afresh. Uh, you may have the Spirit inside you if you're a believer, but, but you're not going to have the power of the Spirit. And then finally, pursue the promptings. Oh, Lord, would you lead me and guide me about this? And, and it's a matter at times of just being quiet before God. Lord God, would you block out every voice except your voice? And I need to hear from you. 
Lord, what, what do I need to hear me? Or what should I do about this? And you, you're quiet, and God at times puts these impressions, these leadings, these promptings upon your heart. So, church, uh, swap, surrender, wait in prayer, avoid sin, pursue the promptings of the Spirit. Okay, here in this passage, Peter is announcing the fulfillment of the prophecy about the Spirit. And he specifically begins in verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, when you see the term last days in the New Testament, Woods Edge, you hear me say this, but I want you to really plant it in your mind. It'll help you understand the New Testament. That does not, that phrase does not refer to the last three or four years before Christ comes again. That's a phrase that's used of the entire last period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. That's the last days. Just, just check that out through Scripture in the New Testament. See if it doesn't fit. Last days, latter days, the entire period. We are in the last days until Jesus Christ comes again, and then we'll begin the, the, the eternal state. So in the last days, our day, church, this is a day in which the Holy Spirit is on the inside Okay, now just digest that and process that with me if you would. Okay, in the Old Testament, people couldn't get close to God. Only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. They had a rope on his, on his uh, uh, ankle because if he died, had a heart attack in there, they'd have to pull him out. Nobody else could go in there. I mean, God is holy uh, just, you know, because of our sinfulness. We don't mess around here. But you have the Holy Spirit, God, inside your body inside your spirit, the creator of the galaxies on the inside to empower you for daily living. Now, the way 95% of Christians live the Christian life is not in the power of the Spirit, but by trying harder. And that don't work. If you try to overcome sin or to live the way you've lived by trying harder, it doesn't work. Oh, God, I cannot do this, but you can. Fill me afresh with your spirit. Church, we're going we're gonna to keep remembering that. We're going to keep reminding ourselves of that because that may be the way that 95% of the American church lives, but not here at Wood's Edge. We're not going to live that way. You have now heard me say it time after time. So daily, press in, remember, surrender, and we live that way. Okay. Twice in the first two verses, he says, I will pour out my spirit. You see it in verse 17. Again, you see it in verse 18. Twice he's saying, during this time, I will pour out my spirit. That means you don't get a little drizzle of the spirit. We got a downpour. This is a Texas rainstorm. So we, we, he, God's not just, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. He's pouring out his spirit as much as you will take, much as you will take. So remember, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, you've got the Spirit inside you. The issue is not that you have the Spirit. That's not the issue. The issue is, does the Spirit have you? Are you surrendered? Are you surrendered? If you've got open sin, you are not surrendered. You're not going to be perfect, but you can be surrendered. Lord God, have all of me. Have all of me. You change me. All right, church, that's the Christian life. That's the, spirit, the, the spiritual life. Okay. Little thing about prophecy in the, in the New Testament. Sorry, I don't think I have this up on the screen. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, open it up. iPhones. Okay, 
17 and 18, he talks about the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden, 19, he jumps from the first coming to the second coming. Notice 19, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. That is code language in the New Testament. Day of the Lord for second coming. It's a day of judgment. Day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. So, uh, he goes from first coming to the second coming, just in a, in a blink. And the prophets do that a lot in the Old Testament. So just be nimble. They don't always alert us. Hey, I'm going from first coming to second coming. But he does it there. But his real point is down in verse 21, the verse I've not yet read, the last verse of Joel 2, where he says, And everyone, and it shall come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, church, can you imagine... Back 8th century B.C., the prophet Joel stands up in the temple area, and he says, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved. Everybody's saying, of course, God. But by the New Testament, we know Jesus is also God. And this this refers to Jesus, doesn't it? One of the myriad ways in the New Testament, the Bible just assumes that Jesus fulfills the prophecies reflecting God. If you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. In fact, in a couple of chapters, he will say, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Church, if you've been around Wood's Edge, you know this, but maybe you're, it hadn't been crystal clear. You do not get into the kingdom of God. You are not saved by being religious or by being good enough or avoiding sin. That is not how you get in the kingdom but by calling on the name of the Lord. That is by saying, Lord, I could never save myself. Jesus, would you save me? Friend, if you have never done that, do it right now. Do it right now. Don't wait another second. Just breathe a prayer. Jesus, would you save me? And he'll do it. That's why he came, to save us from our sin. So, all everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everybody who calls in faith on the name of the Lord. All righty. Now, the mention of Jesus, the Lord, leads to the next two movements, and the focus is going to shift from the Holy Spirit to Jesus because he made it possible for us to come into the, the kingdom. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he's speaking to thousands of Jewish people here. He says, he did these in your midst. You, you yourselves know that. You, many of you saw miracles. Unfortunately, many of them saw the miracles, and in their unbelief and resistance against God, they turned away. A miracle doesn't automatically save somebody. Uh, some people see miracles and, and don't get saved, but, but this is the intended purpose. And Peter says, He did them right here in Jerusalem. We're not talking about some ancient city, some foreign city. You saw many of the miracles, turning water into wine. You saw him raise the uh, uh, widow's son from the dead and and heal the eyes of the blind man and other things. So he goes on in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men. Okay, Peter, not long before, six weeks before, when he was asked, aren't you a follower of Jesus? By a servant girl, 
He denies. No, no, not me. He doesn't want to get killed too, like Jesus. He is scared to death. Six weeks later, he stands up in the temple area with religious authorities all around and Roman soldiers who could execute him. And he says, you yourselves crucified and killed him. He's a changed man. He's seen the risen Lord, and he's filled with the Spirit. And there's power there. You'll see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit is filling him and, and leading him. And he said, you did it. You're guilty. So he's fearless now. Notice in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That, that verb, delivered up, can be used elsewhere of Judas delivering up Jesus. But when you think about it, who delivered up Jesus to be crucified? Well, was it Judas or was it Pilate or was it the religious leaders or was it the Roman soldiers who nailed him? To some extent, all of those, but ultimately it was God. Because God in eternity past said, one day I'm going to send my son and I'm going to have him crucified for your sins and mine. And so God, the Father, he didn't do it. You know, those others did it for money and greed and fear and jealousy. God did it for love. But here's the thing, church. He did it for love for you personally. You personally. He did it for you. He did it in love. Okay. He's delivered up according to God's ultimate plan. By the way, the fact that God is sovereign in the universe and world never means that we're not responsible. And, and, and so many Christians get hung up on that because we want to lean into, well, he's sovereign. We want to de-emphasize the responsibility of man. Or many Christians uh, lean into the responsibility of man and they de-emphasize the sovereignty of God. The Bible teaches that God is fully sovereign and you and I are fully responsible at the same time without any sort of equivocating or embarrassment. Does he not go on to say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. You're responsible. The Bible throughout teaches God is fully sovereign. If you're in the kingdom, it's because God chose you and elected you and he blessed you. He opened your blind eyes and uh, gave life to your dead heart. But you and I, we're responsible to believe in Jesus. And if you're here the question, and you never trusted Christ. The question is not, well, did God choose me or not? That's not the question. The question is, you believe in Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. The Bible teaches both without any embarrassment. All righty. Verse 23. Verse 22 is the life of Jesus. Verse 23 is the death of Jesus. Now, verse 24, the resurrection of Jesus. I love the phrase in here. It says in 24, God raised him up. Okay, the one that you crucified, God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it, death. So what Peter just says, uh, you killed Jesus. God raised him up because it was impossible for Jesus to be held by death. Now think about that to the contrast to the modern uh, cultural and academic and intellectual elite who would say, you know, this idea of the resurrection of this Jewish carpenter, that's impossible. That violates all the laws of nature. Well, if that person is also God in the flesh, God incarnate, it is not impossible for him to be risen. It is impossible for him to stay dead. 
He cannot not be raised because he is the author of life in the universe. All life comes from Jesus. He is the creator. He is the author. He is the source of all physical life, all spiritual life. He is the author of life. You can't hold him back. He's going to burst out of that tomb. It's impossible for him not to be raised. And then he goes on the end of this section. He'll quote some from Psalm 16. You start off with Jewel 2. You go to Psalm 16. Before he ends, he's going to go to Psalm 110. And the Spirit is just bringing these passages to his mind. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See all these 120 believers uh, around me here? We've all seen him. We saw him over 40 days. We saw him multiple times. We saw him eating fish. We saw the risen Jesus. We saw him with our own eyes. Now just imagine, this is 60 days after the death and resurrection. Just imagine in 1963, you were in Dallas, Texas, or maybe Washington, D.C., and you tried to start a movement that John Kennedy was risen from the dead. And that ain't going to fly because they could go show you his body. But in the same city, not two months later, they were announcing Jesus is risen and we've seen him. And moreover, we're giving our whole lives to him. We've been, I'm no longer the ter- scared little scary cat because I've seen the risen Jesus. And those disciples and the 120 gave their lives, many of them being martyred because they'd seen him. One scholar put it this way, one of the most amazing facts about the early Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection was that it originated in the very city where Jesus was crucified. The Christian faith did not come to exist in some distant city, far from eyewitnesses who knew of Jesus' death and burial. No, it came into being in the very city where Jesus had been publicly crucified under the very eyes of its enemies. Another scholar said, let us remember this, the apostles did not believe in the resurrection because it was an article of faith. It became an article of faith because they had seen the risen Lord. They were a bunch of whipped puppies after the crucifixion, but then they saw the risen Lord and they were filled with the Spirit. All right, church, we've seen the coming of the Spirit. It's all based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now the final movement, briefly, is the exaltation of Jesus. He's exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out the Spirit. And then at the end of that section, after quoting Psalm 110, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's like Peter can't resist telling him again, whom you crucified. And I'm pretty sure in the original language, I don't have it uh, right there handy, but it's, it's, it's emphasized in a way that Greek can do, saying whom you crucified. He is letting them know you are responsible. Now, they didn't actually nail him to the cross, but... They were part of it, either by their fear bowing to the press of religious leaders, but their sin sent him to the cross. And in the same way, you, you Woods Edgers, you crucified Jesus. I crucified Jesus because my sin sent him to the death. My sin sent him to the cross. He, he didn't just die for other people's sin. He died for my sin. 
The whole reason God the Father sent Jesus to the cross was because of your sin and mine. And we are guilty. But on that cross, he pays for our sin to set us free. Church, we're not talking about a matter of theology. We're talking about the personal, fervent love of our God in heaven who made us and who did the unthinkable. He sends his own son to die on a bloody cross for the likes of us. And if that doesn't change our lives, something's wrong. That God should die for us. I don't know much about art history, but I have read about Rembrandt. The Dutch painter who might be the greatest painter ever, you know, up there with Da Vinci and those guys. Well, Rembrandt, one of his paintings, it's the raising of the cross. I know it's uh, dark in there, but can you see it enough? Get the idea? All right. All right. So this is the raising of the cross. He's been nailed to the cross, and now they're lifting that cross up to plant it in the hole in the ground. Now, do you notice that that guy right in the middle of that painting... He doesn't, he's not dressed like a typical Jewish or Roman soldier, is he? That's a painter's beret on his head. That face is Rembrandt's face. What is Rembrandt saying but that my sin crucified Jesus? Rembrandt got it. Do you get it? You're guilty of the death of Jesus, and you are in need of grace. If you're here and you've never received that grace, receive it now. If most of us, we've already received that, then that should just awaken nothing but gratitude and full surrender for the gospel. That Jesus died as our Savior. As Spurgeon put it, upon a life I did not live and upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity and the resurrection is the wine. Church, that's how I feel. And I know that's how you feel. You're risking everything upon the death and the life and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender everything. Church, stand with me, please. Lord, thank you for a Savior. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for grace. Thank you that you forgive us all our sin, completely, forever. You're so good. You're perfect in your love, in your grace. And now, Lord, you've given us of your spirit to live the daily life, and we surrender afresh to you. Lord, I pray all over the room that people would just surrender afresh to you because of your goodness to us, because we need you. We bless you. In Jesus' name.